Welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. I'm Jeff Salzman, and I am coming to you from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, where we are at the cusp of apparently our first winter's night. The clouds have rolled in from the west. It's all dark and thick and drizzly and they say that by morning that drizzle will have turned into our first snow. So we're feeling cozy here. I'm here with Brett Walker, our producer. You cozy, Brett? Cozy. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of nice. I, I always love the change of seasons. I'm feeling slightly melancholy just because we had so many of my favorite people in town for the integral living room and yeah. now they're all gone. Yeah. It's a bit of a relief, but it's also a little <laughs> sad, you know? Yeah, yeah, we just got off of a five-day event at the Boulder Integral Center called the Integral Living Room. And for those of you who don't know, it's a, an event that we put on every fall, or, or at least for the last four. You know, we have about 100 people come in from all over the world, actually. And we think about and talk about and practice about really cool things. And this last week, we uh, turned our attention to the subject of the human soul from an integral perspective, which is a territory that is often sort of ignored uh, in the integral world and often in progressive spirituality in general. We'll get to that in a second. But I do want to do a couple housekeeping items here. For those of you who are new to The Daily Evolver, you know, we're on uh, iTunes and Stitcher and, of course, my personal site, thedailyevolver.com, as well as our home site at Integral Life. What we're doing here is trying to illuminate current events, that is, events in politics and culture and e economics, war and peace, spirituality, to illuminate basically the arising of the evolution of culture and consciousness uh, through an integral perspective, and then in so doing, also illuminate integral theories and make it a little bit easier to understand by applying it to the circumstances of our lives. I won't use a lot of integral uh, terminology and jargon, but there are a couple things I, I point out uh, most every week, and that is there's a chart of the altitudes of development, and there's a chart of the quadrants of reality that are helpful to anybody who's new to integral theory or intermediate even. You can find it at dailyevolver.com under the theory section. It's the first thing under the theory section. All right. Boy, Brett, just, Brett is making this lime-flavored carbonated water with this contraption that he ordered off the internet. And <laughs> damn, is it good. It's a soda maker. Yeah, it's, it's good. That's yes. strong soda, strong stuff. What I want to do is, one of the things I want to do is look at the topic that we engaged over these last five days. And that is, as I said, the topic of soul. Uh, we named the retreat Transrational Soul Initiation. And uh, by we, I mean my co-teachers and designers of the course. First of all, Ken Wilbur, he was there and, uh, for, and, and he has spent actually the last year working with us on, you know, really just understanding this topic of soul from an integral perspective. 
And so, as I said, he was there live for a couple hours, which is a rare thing. And we so appreciate it and treasure that time with Ken. Uh, and of course, my co-teachers are Diane Musho Hamilton, and she is um, a Zen teacher that we all, many of us know and love. And I've worked with Diane for over a decade. And, you know, one of the challenges for Diane, we all, all three of us had a, a, a certain challenge in this topic. For Diane, it's that Zen doesn't acknowledge a soul. Uh, really purified mystical practice that is intended to deliver us to the non-dual absolute realization takes everything as passing and ephemeral, uh, our bodies, our lives, every moment, the soul, and basically deconstructs all experience into, you know, the oneness of absolute reality. So the soul sort of goes against her spiritual training, but she's naturally a mystic and a nature mystic. And in fact, her zendo uh, is out in the wilds of of Utah, and she is a master of that kind of teaching too, which is, of course, very much soul-oriented, and also a master of teaching in, in working with group energies and, and, and the subtle energies of individuals and groups. Is a, you know, she's a real master of that. So that's also in the soul category. So, you know, we were working with all of that. And then the third teacher is Terry Patton, who actually was the person who uh, developed the whole idea of working with soul and has written papers on it at the Integral Theory Conference and um, is uh, really uh, organizing his work around this topic. And he comes from an ecstatic tradition where he lived and worked with the great spiritual yogi Adida, who many of you have heard of. And he was with Adida for 13 years. So he brings that whole lineage to the party. And then there's me. <laughs> I'm a little slow on this topic um, because it's new to me. And so I, I think I, like a lot of the people in the audience, just sort of held the integral egghead seat. I was, I was there learning and, you know, kind of working with it. And I think one of the ways that we can sort of, or that I can share and hopefully illuminate some of this for you is to just share my journey in soul and soul work and uh, sort of this whole concept. And I was born into a traditional religious background. I was born into a fundamentalist Christian Bible-oriented church in a small town in Western Pennsylvania, and it taught the Bible doctrine that each of us has an immortal soul. And it's, in a sense, the deepest identity that we have, the deepest self, my essential Jeffness, individual in all of time and space. There's, it's not a continuity from lifetime to lifetime in the Christian tradition. Uh, this soul lives both within and beyond the body, and it is the thing that carries me forward into my hopefully reward of heaven, if I do things right and, and believe the right things, uh, or my eternal punishment if I don't. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, that got me 
into the game as a as a child, and 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 I get that. Especially, I get that soul identity that Christianity talks about. But you know, by the time I got to I don't know eleven or twelve or certainly thirteen, it just didn't make sense to me anymore. Particularly the part about the eternal punishment, and you know, I can remember as a six year old thinking the little children and China get punished because they weren't uh, taught Christianity, you know, that never really sat that well with me. Uh, and, you know, like a lot of people probably listening to this podcast, the, that story, that mythic story, stu- soon stops making sense uh, as we become scientific, which I did in my early teens. And right on schedule, I lost my religion so that words and even concepts like soul and God uh, started feeling backward and embarrassing. And, you know, at that point, I've become scientific, materialistic, secular, and look for explanations on that side of the street, as we would say an integral on the right-hand quadrants, the world of the exterior material reality. And, you know, that's a very typical move most of us overmake it in the sense that we tend to think that the whole world is material and that consciousness is something that is a delusion and soul certainly so i was there you know for a while and then i moved to uh you know boulder and green postmodern reality and at that point you know i'm like what late teens early 20s at this point, soul is less interesting as a third person, as an it, as some part of me, some object within me. And it becomes something that I can sort of feel into in first person. And, and I can feel that's the sense of soulfulness and Motown music and the certain embodied sensuality and earthiness and sexiness that comes from you know, being soulful. And that is where a lot of us end up with as we move into green post-modernity. And if we want to sort of keep going in that territory, then, you know, there is a post-rational or post-modern spirituality that lets, well, basically it lets everything back in and many new things as well. So, you know, we get busy with things like cleanses and fasts and going on vision quests. And we appropriate the ceremonies of the native people and the shamans. And we, you know, in my case, we do body electric where you know, we go to these workshops where we're naked within the first 15 minutes. Um, psychedelics, drugs. I know people in Boulder, where there are is a serious psychedelic community, uh, where the, the psychonauts, as they call themselves, you know, they're like fine sommeliers. They can tell you the varieties of psychedelics and the molecules and, you know, what it does and how it tunes things as it ushers us through these portals into new realities uh, in the subtle realms. And, you know, we traveled to monasteries and ashrams and studied with this teacher and gurus and adepts, and we sat satsang, and 
we got gazed upon and, you know, cast with holy water. And whatever it is we did, we, it, it, well, I'll speak for myself. I found it all very rich, you drumming in the woods, you know, all of it. Uh, very uh, soulful. It woke up my body, <clears throat> no doubt about it. I feel like it woke up my upper right-hand quadrant from an integral perspective, my subtle body, my energy body. But I never quite knew what to do with it, and I sensed that there was a lot of horseshit sort of mixed in, and I kept it at arm's length, even though I you know, did it with a lot of enthusiasm, These sort of soul practices, green soul practices. And then comes integral. And basically, and this is so beautiful, this is what integral does that is so beautiful, and that is that it includes all of that. The only thing that it doesn't include, so it includes the, the, the magic and the great myths of the pre-modern, of the traditional and magic stages of consciousness. It includes rationality itself. It includes the scientific method. It includes the sort of personal depth practice of the interiority of our own being and the embodied interiority of ourselves that we come to in green. But what it leaves behind is the exclusivity claims of each of them. Think about it. We want magic without the exclusivity claims that magic has at its own indigenous stage of development where it thinks that it's the only thing. Same with modernism or materialism that comes online in uh, the modern stage of development, which brings this crystalline, amazing method of knowledge called the scientific method, but wants to collapse the whole world into the scientific view. And also, you know, the green, where basically there's, it's, uh, green's exclusivity claims is that there's nothing that one can claim. <laughs> there's nothing that one can know. You know, this, this idea of complete, uh, that there's no absolute truth, that everything is relative, and um, deconstructs the idea of knowledge uh, and certainly certainty itself. So, you know, so we're left then with, these claims like yogis that can walk through walls. Well, okay, from an integral perspective, I want to bring the scientific method online there. That's a very, very uh, significant claim that a yogi can walk through walls. I want the videotape. That's a devastating requirement for people who want to claim that their interior experience of walking through walls also translates in the exterior of a human body, a material body walking through a material wall, which, as far as I know, there's no videotape of. Uh, we have these, you know, shamans who, you know, they always have some portends of ominous times to come and how the, the, the stars are misaligned. Or the, the last one, I talked to somebody who had talked to the shamans and the sun is off of its axis. And from a scientific standpoint, if the sun was off of its uh, trajectory by a millimeter, a thousand astronomers 
and probably a million amateur astronomers would know it within a minute. I mean, it's just not happening in the exteriors. I went to India with Sai Baba, with a friend who was a devotee of Sai Baba, and Sai Baba is this spiritual teacher there who would come out and do satsang for literally thousands of people, mostly European and Europeans and Westerners, and would throw this vibhuti, this ash on us that was, you know, basically the Hindu version of holy water. And it would come out of nowhere. And, you know, just a, from my perspective, a, a pretty good ma- magician. So anyway, this is what science can do to bring clarity to this whole realm of subtle practices that, you know, there's really huge, endless uh, practices in all religions around these. And they make these claims, like Jesus really did walk on water. Moses really did part the Red Sea. Well, you know, I, I, I guess we can't get the videotape from back then, but people are making claims now that have the same kind of, um, <clears throat> you know, basically quadrant conflation where they collapse the interiors into the exteriors, or in case of these spiritual claims, they collapse the, the exteriors into the interiors. So that anything, you know, whatever I can think of or whatever ex- experience I have in my interior is also happening in the exterior. And, you know, what we see when we get hip to this is that by limiting experience and seeing which dimension of reality, and here we're using the quadrants, is it the, you know, the interior, is it my own interior? You know, I have my friend who I went to see Sai Baba with. He, he had this experience with some other Sai Baba devotees where they went and they gazed upon a photograph of this mother figure, this divine mother. And this is a famous photograph because she cries. From her eyes comes tears. And the tears drain down and they drip and they fall to the floor. And so people see this and they think that the Divine Mother is crying. And I don't know. I'm guessing that they have something set up so that the, you know, the water flows and it keeps the, you know, keeps the people happy. So let's say that they do. Let's say that that's not, that the mother isn't really crying through this picture, but it's actually just a magician setup. So we can take that off the table. And we, what we're left with is something that because it's been limited, it is liberated. What we, we have left is the first-person experience of seeing the tears come down from the mother and all of what that means. We have in the lower left or the second-person dimension, we have a collective experience of that. It's like when I moved to Boulder 20-some years ago, there were thousands of people, eventually tens of thousands of people, who flocked to the Mother Cabrini Shrine, which is a Catholic shrine off of I-70 down past Golden. And they would see the Virgin Mary uh, appear in the clouds. And that is a significant experience in the upper left, 
in terms of people's actual experience and in terms of the collective experience. And so one of the things that Integral does with this soul work is it allows us to make these distinctions so that, you know, now I, Jeff, who's, you know, I'm pretty skeptical about these kinds of things. I can actually work with first and second person soul experiences or subtle energy or subtle body experiences without having to worry about whether they're true, quote, in the exteriors. And that both sort of leaves the exteriors alone and it frees me to actually work on the soul journey that I'm on. And that is, um, you know, I, I can't get into, you know, everything we talked about, but I, I will say, actually, if you are interested, we've done a series of calls over the last year, uh, some of which are on Integral Life and on the Integral Living Room site, integralivingroom.com. And Diane and Terry and I have done uh, some conversations by phone with Ken. So there's lots of, you know, theory. And, and Ken was you know, has really thought a lot of this through in a way that's really, really helpful. And I'll leave you with one, one more um, insight that was really, really helpful to me. And that is Ken's teaching on what survives this life. You know, when I talk about being on a soul journey, is there some part of me that actually continues after death? I mean, this is sort of the great human existential question. And Ken's answer is, it comes from the Vajrayana tradition of Buddhism. And, you know, he holds it lightly, but it's uh, definitely illuminating and, and very illuminating to me. And the, the two things, there's two things, there's two drops of Jeff that survive this life. One is my wisdom, which is defined as the realization of the absolute oneness of all things. Okay, so to the degree that I have realized, and I'm talking that capital R realization, where I've grokked, where I've gotten in my belly and body and heart and throat and loins, as well as my mind, this reality that everything is one. And, you know, this sort of, this non-dual realization of unity and ultimately emptiness. So that's one thing. That's one drop of Jeff that survives. My wisdom. And the other is my virtue, which is the sum total of the good that I did in this lifetime. And that's really helpful to me. Because, of course, I want to do good, and, you know, I do my thing, a lot of which is good, I think. But I have to say, you know, just from almost a childlike perspective, it makes me want to do that more. It makes me realize that everything I do is an opportunity to add to this store of virtue. And that I don't have this public Jeff where I go out and do my work and I you know, meet people and I teach and I do things and I'm nice to people and I help them move and I watch their dog and I, you know, whatever. All of that stuff that makes me, quote, good. But it's also about what I do when I'm in private, Jeff. And take it from an Enneagram 5. 
uh, I have a big private Jeff. I mean, for an Enneagram Five, one's interior world is almost as you know interesting as the exterior world, and you know, we five sort of take pride in that we can think anything and we can go anywhere and we can explore. And what I realize is that this there isn't this safe little walled off Jeffness that's just about me, where I can be safe in my own little Jeff world and allow my mind to go off in all kinds of fantasies and intellectual explorations. And it, it actually reminded me of something that Chokum Trumpa, the Tibetan master who started Naropa and Shambhala, something he taught that really hit me between the eyes. And I learned this back in my 20s before I really got into all of this Buddhism stuff. But I remember just something I read or saw, and, and, and it, he said, let go of the idea that there is some little cozy chair by the fireplace where you can go and read your Time magazine and be safe from impermanence. <laughs> and I remember hearing that before I was, again, into this, and it really chilled my bones because that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to find the cozy little place where I can do my thinking. And that's all I've ever wanted since I was 18 years old. And that isn't, it's not about me, you know, that my virtue, what I'm actually doing for others, and that this is the, you know, dimension of goodness. There's, we have beauty, truth, and goodness. Truth is great. Beauty's great. But goodness is how am I actually helping other people? And that that's something that I can't wall off and just relax and think that I'm going to be safe from impermanence. So I, I love that. And that's some of what I learned and and, um, you know, had strengthened. Uh, I always think of the wonderful line from the Desiderata, nurture your strength of spirit. I like that. And so that's some of what I got from the weekend. All right. Well, as I said, if you want more, check out the integrallivingroom.com. We're going to do another one next year. We don't know what it's about, when and when we're doing it or whatever, but... Diane and Terry and I, with Ken, are committed to doing another one and keeping the ball rolling. It's uh, really, really a, a rich event. Uh, moving from the spiritual realm to politics, I've been talking a lot about politics because, of course, it's a presidential election here, here in the States. And there's, of course, just always politics going on. In Europe, there's the migrants and the Middle East and Africa, and, you know, it's everywhere. Politics is everywhere. It's it's the um, the the use and the, the civil use of power, and it's something that is endemic and just built into the human condition. And I got a um, a, a message. Actually, I think it was on the the board on Integral Radio, the, the message board, from a listener, Tom Carroll, a couple weeks ago. I was talking about American politics, and he wrote this, and it really got me. So I want to read what he wrote. It's a paragraph. He said, Jeff, when will you share the microphone with an integral conservative? These terms are not mutually exclusive. We, conservative thinkers, are not isolationists, nor messianic magical thinkers. 
Conservatism embodies great wisdom that should be integrated into your conversation. Let me say, with respect, I am a generally conservative person, and I feel very disrespected listening to what you have said. I feel that I, as a representative of conservatism, am grossly misunderstood. I am writing with a smile, with goodwill, but with serious concern for the degree of misunderstanding that I hear. And I take that to heart. And I have been, you know, working with this whole idea myself of, as we look at the stages of development, we can see on one hand that traditionalism, which is mythic, which is religious, which is more ethnocentric than world-centric, is followed historically. You know, ethnocentrism was the human condition up until modernity came online. And that is about 300 years ago. And that was just the beginning. It took a long time. It's still not an achieved thing. Is that uh, modernity comes online and we become secular. And we get the idea of the rights of man and individual freedom and that sovereignty resides within my own being. That's an achievement of modernity. And that came on after, historically, uh, traditionalism. And then post-modernity came on historically after modernity in the 60s with Bob Dylan and the you know free love and uh, ecology and feminism and gay rights and all of that stuff. So, well... Getting into the idea of more evolved is, a, is everything is perfectly evolved for its niche, evolutionary um, psychologists or evolutionary scientists will tell us. But they do come on in that order. Now, what is also true is that there is a dispositional conservatism that basically wants to conserve what is good about every stage of development that is as integral as anything out there. And so I went to my friend, Rich Toffel, who is an integral conservative. I, I listened to your request, Tom, and I talked to Rich about this because Rich has really taught me a good bit about, you know, being a conservative integralist. Uh, Rich started the Log Cabin Republicans, for those of you who may remember back in the 90s, the the gay um, Republican organization, because Rich is a conservative, and he's also gay. And this was the day of, of Ronald Reagan and AIDS. And Rich is a very significant figure in American politics. He's still working. He's part of the Institute for Cultural Evolution, which I'm on the board, uh, as is he. And together, we went to a, an event at Esalen uh, a couple weeks ago on political polarization, you know, the struggle between left and right in America. And when we were there, we were having breakfast with this woman who was really hung up on this idea. We just had a, a, a session on integral theory about, you know, traditionalism, modernism, and postmodernism. And for her, this idea that postmodernists would be more evolved or more developed than traditionalists was just a non-starter. It was, it was, it was untenable for her uh, because she had at one time been uh, 
tribal leftist liberal and, you know, hated the Koch brothers and hated Fox News and all of that stuff. And she had kind of worked hard to overcome that and see not only, you know, tolerance, but also what do conservatives see that I don't see, that liberals don't see? And what vibe do they have and what are they tuned into that I'm not? And what's the value of having everybody at the party? And why would you, you know, sort them out in some way of, of higher and lower? So I, uh, I took that question to Rich. He was there at, the, at, the, at, at this breakfast with this woman. There was the three of us. And so I called him uh, a couple of weeks ago and asked him to share his understanding of this. And uh, so, uh, Brett, I think we have segment one with Rich coming up here. It's a couple minutes. So listen to Rich Toffel address this question. How can integral work if it posits that liberals are at the high end of evolution and conservatives are at the low end of evolution? And we would wonder why any conservative would want to engage in integral theory because it's sort of that's, that's a tough place to start. And I do believe that, um, one, I, I don't describe it in hierarchical terms because it's natural when you see it scale going up and down to say, well, higher is better. And so I, I usually use left to right for one thing. The other thing is I do challenge the premise by most integralists who have come out of a progressive background that the Republican Party is, a, is at traditional and the Democratic Party is at green and more evolved and just about to become integral. I don't see that in my experience. My experience is that at each of these levels, there's polarities within them. And so if you go to, say, traditional, uh, it's often forgotten in the Democratic Party that what are the big base of the Democratic Party? The African-American community, the Latino community, the immigrant community. And if you spend any time in those communities, you know they're very traditional. They operate very much like a evangelical Christian who might be from a white church. Uh, so they have a lot of the same values. There are historic reasons why they're in currently in the Democratic coalition, once in the Republican coalition. But there is a very strong traditional base to the Democratic Party. Now, it's lost most of its traditional blue-collar workers to the Republican Party in recent years, but that was also a big chunk of where the Democrats were. When you go to modern... And in some ways, it, it lost the uh, working people to the Republican Party because of cultural values. Exactly. The interesting thing is if you talk within the African-American and Latino communities, they align on social issues much closer to the Republican Party. The only thing that really holds them back is a fear of racism, anti-immigrant rhetoric, and the fact that the Democrats um, have basically said, we will protect you in our party. We are the good party. But on, on social values, they're very much aligned to what you would say uh, a traditionalist on the Republican side. So that's a huge chunk of Democrat voters. So to say that Democrats are all at green, that's not the case. Right. Second thing is when you, when you get to modern, what's interesting about modern is that the Republicans and the Democrats are very similar. That's why, say, uh, uh, Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, you really didn't know. They, they, they kind of agree on everything, the truth is. They both are influenced by their wing. So the traditional wing is more influential in the Republican Party. So Jeb Bush will have to say certain things, and he's not doing it very well to please them. At the same time, Hillary, you know, in the debate would say, I'm a progressive, but I'm a progressive who gets things done. She's saying, I'm modern. I'm not like the green. I'm not, at, I'm not stuck at progressive. Right. 
And then when you get to green, you know, what you have in the left is you have the obviously the very progressive, the radical progressive, and the, you know, you could say in a more positive way, the creative class pushing against modernity uh, and everything that's wrong about capitalism, big business and all that. On the right, you have very strong libertarians, and they're very puzzling for liberals because they can't quite figure out how they fit in. But they're very much against crony capitalism at, at the modern level. They're very much against the uh, cozy relationship, the military-industrial complex, and the bureaucracies all operate. They're very much against the fact that there's a relationship between the political class in Washington and the lobbyists. Um, they're very pro unregulated things. Let's get everything as regulated as possible, as much freedom as possible. So they operate um, much more at what I would say green. Yeah, so it's a little more complicated. And as people move up the developmental levels, they maintain a certain dispositional quality that is, as I've, I've said before, you, you either have your foot in the brake or you have your foot in the gas. And the movement through green is not, it's like Rich points out, there are a lot of people on the political right who are against crony capitalism. They're against big business and you know corporate welfare, uh, the military complex. They're against wars. These are the libertarians. And these people, they, they get pluralism. They get that everybody gets to have a role. They don't want to see anybody discriminated against. They've learned all of the lessons of modernity and post-modernity in the sense of they understand ecology. And, but they're not necessarily the green that we think of which is, you know, we often caricature as being woo-woo or relativistic or deconstructionist. They're not necessarily um, what I was talking about earlier. There's a understanding in Integral that each of the first tier structures divide the world into two parts or divide humanity into two parts. At red, the humanity is divided between predators and prey people who are strong and people who are weak. And that's the, you know, that, that's what's going on at red. At amber, the world is divided between the saints and the sinners, people who are good and going to heaven and following God or following the way, and people who aren't. At orange, the world is divided between winners and losers. And that is basically a merit, money, results, whatever. At green, the world is divided between people who are cool and people who aren't. And that's a certain a dispositional quality that I think has, in some ways, taken over the green postmodern personality, where it's secular and world-weary and cynical, and there's no such thing as truth, and God, all of that's dead, that's all that's gone. And there's that sort of, it's a little more David Letterman than Jay Leno, but that isn't necessary to get the necessary and adequate download of green uh, that sees 
you know, my own interiors. Green becomes very interested in psychotherapy, uh, self-improvement, that sort of thing. Uh, but again, very pluralistic. And, and now we have people, even on the far right, the most conservative people in the American political system who really are demonstrating their modern and postmodern ideas about race by supporting Dr. Ben Carson. He's currently leading, African-American, currently leading in the Republican primaries and leading among the most conservative people. And, you know, this is typical of the conservative mind. I saw a wonderful paragraph in a column written by David Brooks where he talked about the conservative temperament. And David Brooks is a, a columnist for the New York Times, and I'll just read it. It's a few, few sentences. He says, By traditional definitions, conservatism stands for intellectual humility, a belief in steady, incremental change, a preference for reform rather than revolution, a respect for hierarchy, precedence, balance, and order, and a tone of voice that is prudent, measured, and responsible. Conservatives of this disposition can be dull, but they know how to nurture and run institutions. They also see the nation as one organic whole. Citizens may fall into different classes and political factions, but they are still joined by chains of affection that command ultimate loyalty and love. The other sort of dispositional quality, uh, that's, I'm done with the David Brooks quote, unquote, <laughs> Uh, the other dispositional qualities of conservatism as a, as a way of thinking and relating to the world. Another difference between traditionalists and liberals is in the way that they describe and explain human dysfunction. Traditionalists will tend to come to a more upper quadrant explanation for why people don't succeed. They'll, for instance, emphasize a person's character in the upper left and their behavior, what they actually do, how they act in the upper right. Liberals, on the other hand, will focus on the lower quadrant explanations. They'll, in the lower left, point to institutionalized racism that is endemic in the culture. Or in the lower right, they'll look to uh, lack of opportunity and economic discrimination against people that's sort of built into the system. And so this is one of the reasons that uh, conservatives, and particularly traditionalist conservatives, the most conservative, if you will, of the conservatives, are the people who point to Dr. Ben Carson as a great exemplar for the African-American community. It's one of the reasons they like him so much is that despite the racism and economic deprivation and so forth, uh, Ben Carson uh, became a huge success, a great doctor by all standards. And he and his brother were raised by a single mother in Center City, Detroit. She was one of 23 kids herself. So, you know, this is a great hero to the right. And of course, developmentally, they're correct. Too many young African Americans have arrested development, if you will, at red. They live in chaos in their families, in their schools, in their communities. 
and they have yet to be initiated into amber traditionalist values such as humility, faith, obedience, impulse control, all of that. But the reason for that is better understood by the explanation given to us by the liberals, by the dysfunctions in the lower left. It has nothing to do with the quality of consciousness or behavior in the actual individual person. So this is how, from an integral perspective, we want to include all of these things. We want to include the characterological aspects in the upper left, the behavioral aspects in the upper right, the cultural aspects in the lower left, and the social aspects in the lower right. And any explanation or any policy or program that takes all of those into account is going to be more successful than those that don't. Let's go back to Rich because he talks about how the process of actually, you know, fighting it out in the public arena is fruitful. It's a little bit what we've been talking about, the, the, the hidden potency of polarization and conflict. So let's listen to segment two. I see it in my coaching practice with individuals as well. You see it in nature with individuals. You say, when did you have your breakthroughs? Tell me the milestones in your life where you really broke through to a new level of, of your own evolution. Yeah. It's almost invariably a sad story. Um, I came out. I was kicked out. I got divorced. I was an alcoholic. I was some crisis where something said, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to be a different person. And there's almost invariably a crisis because we don't really want to deal with those things proactively. So we often end up dealing with them reactively and they often aren't pretty. But that does seem to be the way that nature moves us forward, both personally, we see it in the environment and certainly in politics. The history of politics is that. And I know I was uh, very involved with, with gay rights. And I remember people being very discouraged in the 90s because we kept losing at every turn. Yeah. And I kept thinking, no, this is great. You know, we're out there. We're on the field. We're we're getting shot at, but okay, this is we started something, and we're going to win it, but we can't win it if we're not out there engaging. The most common phrase I heard from politicians at that time was, I don't have a problem with you if you would just not talk about it and not talk about being gay or if you wouldn't come out and just keep it in the closet. Right. And I would say, that's, that's good for you. It's not good for me. But the point was, let's, you know, uh, I, you know I, I don't want, nobody wants the conflict, but the conflict is very necessary. And it's important to keep that in mind because we've all gone through conflicts and we remember the goodness that came out of it, the order and structure and the positive that came out of the, the chaos. And I think that's where we are politically right now. I think it is going to get a little bit worse or maybe a lot worse before it gets better. Well, thanks, Rich. One of the things we've talked about here is that as we move forward in cultural evolution, that we begin to take on the aspects of the people that we had been polarized against. And the classic example is male and female, not necessarily polarized against, sometimes certainly. But, you know, this is an enduring polarity, masculinity and femininity that seems to be built into the cosmos. You know, the receptive and the, the penetrative, the, these, are, these are two sides of the coin. And that as we continue to evolve, we have women taking on qualities of men and not becoming less women. They're still 100% women. And men taking on qualities of, of, that have traditionally been uh, the purview of women. We mentioned last week, 
the new Speaker of the House. Paul, what's his name? Uh, Paul Ryan? Yeah, Paul Ryan. Uh, making one of his requests or one of, actually making one of his demands for taking the job that he not have to work weekends so he can be with his kids. You know, this is really a green act coming from a hardline conservative. And so one of the ways forward is to move into what Steve McIntosh calls an integrated polarity where we have libertarians, people from the left, having a progressive uh, impulse where they're actually using conservative ideas not to hold things back, not to put their foot in the gas, but to present a new way forward that's using conservative principles, that takes character into account, that takes families into account, that is concerned about fairness and free riders ruining a safety net, that sort of thing, and the power of freedom and liberty and free enterprise, but all in the cause of moving things forward. So that's how the right will integrate the best of what the left has typically had to offer. And on the other side, the left becomes more optimistic and begins to believe in progress again. And that there are things that are better and worse and that there's ways forward and everything isn't hopeless. And, you know, which is so much a part of the traditional tired left. They're depressed. And so the way forward is that sort of to bring that dynamism to the left and bring a sense of progress to both sides. And I think we're seeing that happening uh, in the in the political scene. So I think we're coming on the end of the line here. As you know, I love hearing from you. I, I get comments and, and people send emails. You can send an email, by the way, to jeff at dailyevolver.com. But one of the best ways to get with me is to leave a message on the Daily Evolver website. And we have a big orange button right on the homepage uh, that is a speak pipe is the, is the actual program. But you press the button and you can leave me a voicemail. And Brett suggested that we end the show tonight with a bunch of voicemails. What is it, four or five minutes, Brett? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Hello, Jeff. I love your work. Um, I just so enjoy listening to your podcast, getting these different perspectives on different issues. And this time I just listened to the drama and karma of the refugees in Europe and um, something close to my heart. It's a great chance for Germany. And I think they're doing very good work at the moment. They are taking on a lot. And they are doing it with a little bit too much green for my liking. So I would like to see a more modernist approach that it is allowed to talk about what is good and what needs to be done, but also what are the problem areas without immediately being um, stamped brown Nazi. And I watch people doing this. I was in a mediation recently, and it was quite fascinating. I'll talk about the Enneagram here. Um, a head type who obviously his alarm bells were ringing loudly and dared to say, we need a human approach. We need to do everything we can to help them with their lives at the moment, to give a human assistance. However, I hope they disappear in five years. And because of that, a colleague was, you know, absolutely horrified at him and couldn't believe it. And this colleague, what was he saying? And she took this to be a kind of 
anti-refugee statement. And for me, you know, she was a one. I can understand she felt it this way. It's not right to talk like that, etc. But for me, I felt for him so much. I thought, you know, poor guy. He's not even allowed to express his fears. Good morning, Jeff. My name is Karen Batesall. This is coming to you from Miami, Florida. I just want you to know I am having to retire the self-empowerment tape set that I bought at Goodwill years and years ago that uh, has so influenced my life and so much I have enjoyed, but it just doesn't work anymore. And lo and behold, I found you on the internet and I'm excited to subscribe to your blog. Keep up the great work. This is Han from Southeast Texas. Really enjoy your perspectives and insights on current events, and in particular, this crazy, fascinating presidential election cycle. What I'm really very curious about is your exclusion of one of the more interesting phenomenons in this election cycle, which is Bernie Sanders. Groundswell of energy from potential young voters. I believe Obama had a little bit of that going on, right? Anytime that sort of interest, energy groundswell is going on, something's going on. Hi, Jeff. My name is Karen Everett, and I live in San Francisco. And I just uh, wanted to let you know that I I listen to you every week, and I I really love what you're doing. Thank you so much. You're really filling a gap. I was kind of at a loss for a few years about how to think about current events, and uh, you've really helped me. I used to teach at UC Berkeley for 18 years at the Graduate School of Journalism and kind of went through a big shift from the cynicism of that to um, more uh, optimistic evolutionary thinking. And I just really appreciate you as a thought leader. Hey there, Jeff. It's Sue Brightman. I wanted to tell you that I really appreciated the show last week. Your tracing of Hillary Clinton and the evolution that she has had just coming into her own skin. I haven't been able to quite identify why... I find myself liking and feeling more comfortable with Hillary. But I think it's all the things that you said about how she has evolved and arrived in her own skin in a different way. And she isn't just a politician speak, you know, sort of press the button and say the right things. She seems to really be being Hillary. Second thing is I appreciated the, I think, courage it takes to say that Ben Carson is a product of soft affirmative action. I haven't been able to figure out how Ben Carson could have possibly gotten to the stage as a candidate. And I appreciated you naming that. And then last, Brooke McNamara, when I listened to her poem last week, the final poem, I was stretched out on my couch after working out at Aquazumba, and I just let her poem wash over me and I ended up in tears. There's something about her ability to put words together that was just so beautiful and so touched me in a way that I think only poetry can. Hi, Jeff. It's Scott Anderson calling in Wanakee, Wisconsin, and I'm calling to express my appreciation for the wonderful dialogues that you've had with Keith Witt over time. I was doing a project this morning that allowed me uh, to take those in, and the breadth and depth of the subjects, perspectives, and insights that are created through uh, the field that you and Keith co-create is really a treasure. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And for those of you who uh, give me feedback and press the speak pipe button, I appreciate that as well. All right, gang, we're done for the night, and we will see you in a week. Till then, Jeff Salzman signing off. Thank you.
ഈ പേര് എന്നാ